Hello once again, I'm Michelle Sawatsky-Coop, and welcome to another episode of our Mental Health for Performance podcast. We're so thankful that it has been made possible by Pinnacle, your recruitment firm that has been proudly on the job for the past 20 years. Our guest today is Peter Davis. Peter is originally from Australia and currently lives in Colorado Springs, but he certainly doesn't limit his influence to the countries he's living in. He is a consultant to Olympic teams, national Olympic committees, national sport governing bodies, professional sport leagues, and more in Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, Great Britain, Botswana, Jordan, Switzerland, the Netherlands, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Belize, Macedonia, the USA, and yes, Canada. In fact, he worked as a senior consultant with Own the Podium. And there's more. He is now a managing partner at Apex Global Sport Group, where their goal is to create successful outcomes at all levels, to understand how performance works, and in all of that, to create spaces where people can thrive. Don't we all want that in the places we lead, live, work, and play? So don't go anywhere. We have Peter Davis all to ourselves for the next hour or so. So turn it up and find out who this Peter is. Okay, well, so I always lead off with the fact that I'm an Australian because I think that that sort of defines a lot of what I do in sport. But um, so at the moment, I'm, I'm a, an owner and founder of a company called Apex Global Sport Group, which is an international sport management company with two others, one from London and one from Amsterdam. So we're a three-person partnership in that. And we, we provide services you know, strategic planning and program review and analysis and program development design for sport organizations at, at any level, from uh, from clubs up to international professional programs around the world. It struck me right off the bat. You said, I like to say I'm Australian because it sort of describes what you do in sport. Um, can you explain that for us? Well, uh, a couple of things. First of all, I think just our style is uh, not too different from Canadians. In fact, it's, you know, it's fairly respectful. We respect authority, but we, we're not overpowered by authority or, or, or leadership. We work together with people as partners and equals, not as hierarchical as in some of the other countries I, I work in. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is, you know, Australia went through a, a sort of a revolution in our sport management system in uh, before the 2000 games. We had, you know, the home, the, the, the Sydney Olympics in 2000. And so for 10 years before that, we went through a process of planning and preparation and uh, development in the whole sports system, which I was part of and part of the leadership of, which really defined how I approach sport management, how I approach sports sciences, coaching and, and everything. I, I quite often, even though it was a long time ago now, I quite often come back to that and think, what did we do then? You know, how did we go through that? It was really, it was groundbreaking and, you know, world groundbreaking what we did. And it really put Australia on the sports stage. I love that. I was actually in Sydney for those Olympics. Sure. I didn't play. Yeah. I was on the broadcasting side, but it was palpable. You could feel the the health. I, I thought it was, I, you could feel sort of a healthy sport environment in the whole Australian team. Yeah. Well, and we, we've always had that. The Australian, you know, we love our sport and we've always been a sport nation. But what we did leading up to the Sydney Games is really put solid management practices and preparation and and solid sports science medicine programs around something that we just sort of did because we always did it. And so we really jumped up. It was revolutionary in the sense that it went from, you know, one level up to the next level, you know, with a lot of planning and best business practice, best sports practice. And and we really 
forged the way, I think, um, for a lot of countries and, and built uh, and, and built a system that, that continues to work, uh, not as good as it used to, in my opinion, of course. But uh, we, we had a great program and got great results. You know, someone's listening you know, today and wondering, how does all this sport leadership relate to an everyday business? I mean, maybe some, some part of that's obvious, maybe. But how would you... Uh, tell someone listening, no, listen in. What we what we've done in sport is is a big deal for what we're do what what people do every day. Well, that's actually probably a double edged question uh, that could be not positive or could be negative. So, and when I say first of all, let me say up front, I'm not a mental trainer, or, you know, expert, or sports psychologist. I'm a sport physiologist, so um, I'm not you know an expert in that field at all. But but when I look at some of the things that we do now in, in the high-performance sport world that would either trickle down to lower levels or trickle over to the business world, it's changing. And, and I think and we've, I think I saw a big change after the London Games. So sports, say, from the Sydney Games to 2004, all the way along, 8, 16, 12, 16, there's been such a heavy, heavy focus on results, you know, it's taxpayer money to a large extent. It's um, a lot of resources going into sport, nearly for the sole purpose of, of how many medals can our country get. And that has been at the expense of athletes and coaches and support staff and officials and families. Um, I think it's had quite a negative effect. There's just been this overwhelming and relentless pursuit of medals. Now, that started to change probably, I, I think I, I saw a change after the, the London 2012 games, and I think it's continued on, and I see it in Canada, I see it in England, Australia, that there's a lot more emphasis now on the well-being of the athletes, the well-being of coaches, the, the mental and the physical health of, of all the stakeholders in the, in the game. And I think that's a message for you know, business, that it's not just about profits, it's not just about you know, making a product uh, it, it's about it's about the family of people that are involved in the process, and I think that's something that I think we're starting to pay more attention to, rightly so. Um, so I think it was negative to start with, in terms of the relentless focus on just results, and now it's become more positive that it's how can we get the best out of people, but protect and, and respect and look after people at the same time. So more detail to come on that, but I, I want to know how you got into this. Like, how did you get to where you are now? You talked about being into uh, the physiology of, of sport and all of that. So, but, but when you were like, were you always sporty? Like, did you always think you'd have a career in sport? You know, fortunately people can't see me and they can't tell exactly how old I am right now, but you know, my, you know, I'm in, <laughs> in my sixties now. So when I was first involved in sport as a kid in Australia and I, I was a swimmer and a, uh, played rugby and and played basketball and volleyball. There wasn't really such a thing as a career in sport, to be honest. Um, and I remember a, a fairly heated conversation with my father at the time, you know, back in the, I want to say, 70s, where he said, you know, you, ne you need to quit this sport business and get cracking on a career. There's no such thing as sport, a career in sport. But now we look at it and there's a huge careers in sport. So, so I, I never really focused on a career in sport from the beginning um, just by you know just by the way things worked out I, I ended up at the University of Oregon doing a master's degree uh, which was a huge step forward for me in just in terms of you know leaving Australia and coming to the US um, and I wouldn't say it was on a whim but it wasn't in my life plan I didn't have a life plan I still don't think I have a life plan but um, 
you know, after that, I got connected with Nike because that was based in Eugene and I, I did physiology work. And then I got out of sport when I was doing my, my doctorate and did some work in completely out of sport in my postdoctoral research in weight management and, um, you know, sort of weight related medical conditions and so forth. But then I got back into sport again, just by chance, by meeting someone, by happened to be in the right place at the right time. And then, you know, the rest is history. I've been involved in high performance sport from the through the Australian Institute of Sport, through the US Olympic Committee, and then the Canadian Olympic Committee, or on the podium. Um, so it, it's just one thing led to another that led to another. And uh, so I've been involved in high performance sport as a physiologist and then as a planning administration management side. And it really wasn't until not too long ago, well, I'm going to say not too long ago, probably 20 years ago, after being in, in the business for 15 years, that I started to actively proactively think about my career you know what do I want to do where do I want to go and what can I do so it was really just by chance to start with I've always done a little bit of consulting when I was doing my doctorate and things like that and then working with different organizations a little bit here and there when when it came up but I was working with own the podium in Canada based in Calgary 2009 ish getting just before the Vancouver games the 2010 winter games and, you know, I, I left on the podium and, and nearly the moment I left, a few sports in Canada called me and asked me to do some consulting work. And then, um, then more people asked, then more people asked. And while I was looking for a new job and a different job, something I wasn't sure what I was wanting to do, I, was having, I had so much consulting work on the table that I, I remember saying, I think I might do this as a job, you know, because like, I'd never really, I'd always thought of it as something a little bit on the side, you know, do a consult here, do a bit there. But then it just came up that it just seemed to make sense. So I formed a company then was just myself called Sport Performance Management and I got a website and I got, you know, registered everything and, and, and it was just one, you know, one thing led to another and I had a ton of consulting work and then, Right before COVID, it just sort of made sense with some of my contacts with the, my, as I said, my colleagues in London and Amsterdam, it just made sense. We said, why don't we join together and create a new company called Apex and um, Apex Global Sport Group. And so it was really, again, like a fair bit of my career, a little bit of a, just by chance and seemed like a good idea at the time. But then once, once it took some shape, then I, I proactively managed it. And, uh, and then same thing with Apex. And so I've you know, been doing it now for, as a consultant for uh, probably 15 years. Yeah. yeah. Now you talk about that. There's the high performance side of these things, but you also said that you work with all levels of sport, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but obviously with on the podium, I mean, Olympic level, international level has been a big thing for you. Is that sort of your favorite place to land? Like, you know, we're talking driving high performance and, and all of that um, with wellness, it, it, you know, uh, do you love the pressure of that? There's a lot of pressure in that to stay well and still have the high performance. Yeah, it's interesting. It is it is the area that I love. I mean, I was a physiologist and I worked with elite teams in Australia for quite a while. And and the, and the you know obviously the Olympics and Paralympics is exciting and you know the, and there is a lot of pressure to come up with the results and and I, I do love that side. And in fact, when I took the job in Calgary with Own the Podium, I was offered another job at the same time in in Houston, but it wasn't Olympic. And so I was tossing out which, which one, which one, and 
And the, uh, the decision I made was based on the fact that I'm really, in, I'm, I, I like the Olympics. I'm, I'm good at working in this area. Um, this is what I'm more interested in. So I, so I took that. So I, I stayed with the Olympic side. But the interesting thing is, as much as I love it, as much as I love the high performance side, and it's exciting, obviously, I always come back to the point that part of the value or the good value in high performance is the impact it has on sport development, participation and kids in sport and the health of the countries and, and so forth. So I always bring it back to that. And even if I'm working in high performance in any country that I'm, I'm working in at the time, I'm always pushing them to say, you know, what's the impact on general participation? How does this trickle down or over or across to club development or more people playing sport or more people in, in you know, and even the health of the country. I, I did one project in one country where I, I very purposely said, this is great, you know, let's, let's find some Olympic athletes and get some results. But I said, I also want to meet with the, the, the Minister for Health and Minister of Education and say, how do we wrap these, all these programs together? Because you have a health issue here or you have a, you have a fitness issue. And so as much as I like high performance, uh, it's all connected and, and you can't just separate them out in separate entities. One of the things I often talk about sports is, you know, if you see the U.S. golf, you know, the U.S. Open in golf, there are lots of ads on television about how to get kids into golf, you know, and they're talking about how, you know, young kids, little kids, you know, get, get, get them the golf experience. And more and more sports need to do that. Uh, and something I push a fair bit for. But, you know, some countries, you know, a lot of my clients, uh, smaller countries who are just obsessed with just want to win a medal. We, we want to, you know, that's what we're going to do. And I say, that's great. You know, that's a great goal. But by itself, it's not going to have a great effect. Let's see what our the things we can build underneath that so that when you do win a medal or if you do but when you do um then we've got programs that'll make it sustainable and and it'll it'll make a difference to the country not just people getting excited for that day and running around you know saying we want a medal it, it, it's got to link back to something real and something sustainable i think yeah for sure so we're talking about driving high performance which i think i know interests people and you know we've talked about that already like how you know, that seems to have been the goal, but you mentioned there's been a change about wellness and safe environments. And how do you see maintaining a safe environment while still pursuing high performance? Well, I don't think they're mutually exclusive for one. And obviously, I don't think you do either. But And we confront it all the time now, a lot, about very sad, disappointing cases of, of athlete abuse and and you know, overuse with for training injuries and you know, personal, physical, sexual, mental abuse of athletes. And I think we have to keep in mind that you know, it's not just about the results, but I think it's about good people. I think sport is not good at finding good people. I think they're very, you know, again, if I work in a country or if I work in a national federation or an NSO or a national sport federation, they get carried away with, oh, let's hire a coach or let's hire this person because they worked in, in a, um, a, high, a sport that won a lot of medals. You know, so they must be good. And so they don't do due diligence. They don't do the background checks. They don't, they, what they, and the thing that I find most is missing, they just don't check on what sort of good person, what, whether they're a good person or not. They don't do references. They don't talk to people. And they don't match up the people with the values of the organization. So I do a lot of work in strategic planning. And when you do strategic planning, whether it's a business plan or whether it's a sport plan, the first thing you do is, you know, establish strong mission, vision, and values. 
and people sometimes say, oh, you know, why do we spend time with this? Why can't we just go to the sports science or, you know, coaching and stuff like that? And I said, because if we don't do this, you won't have a solid basis for your plan or your organization. And I said, I'll, I'll say quite often, the, and I'm probably getting to the point here, this is a long indirect answer. A lot of the work I do besides strategic planning is program review and analysis, which is typically after something's gone wrong, coaching problems or athlete problems or you know, various things. And I always come back when I do a review and an analysis, I always come back to the point that, yeah, you have values, but you didn't follow your values. You, you overlooked that when that thing happened, whatever that thing was, that was against your values, but you overlooked it. You just went on. You didn't, you didn't stop someone. You didn't say something. You didn't do something. And that's the problem. So I said, if you don't establish and, and live your values, you're in trouble. So, so a lot of the times when we hire coaches or we hire performance directors or we hire directors or whoever it is, even board members, we have to keep coming back to the fact that it's about, it's about the values of the organization and, and what, do you believe in them and do you follow them? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's going to help a lot of the well-being issues. That's going to allow you to follow performance and do, you know, make the best people you can, give them the best opportunity and environment for success, but still respect the values of people and, um, you know, and the very, whatever values you have as an organization. Yeah. Yeah. We talk a lot about finding the human behind the performance, but this is even before the performance begins to look at the humans you are hiring and putting in place. And but we overlook the humans, and I say this over and over again. I do a lot of work in the sports sciences, obviously, because that's where I sort of started in in sport. And we talk a lot about you know let's you know having an integrated support team, you know, getting people to work together, having a, a doctor and a physiologist and a sports psychologist, and getting all those people together, or getting a coach, and and all the programs that we put in place, whether it's a sports science medicine program or a parent communication program it always comes down to people it, you know and, and we say why is this so difficult to do and I said because it's about people and people have vested interests but they have their personal history and and preferences and and it's always about people and and yet we always think oh it's about programs it's about you know this testing program or about this coach education program or it's about this talent ID athlete recruitment program but it's at the end of the day it's always about people I know you have a model for how performance works. You know, that to me is an unbelievable tool for high performance. Yeah. And again, this is, um, it's called the Apex 365 model. And I'm going to attempt to explain this without the aid of PowerPoint presentation, which is always always challenging, but a good idea. It sort of started quite a few years ago when, you know, I was doing a lot of work in sport and in high performance. And it occurred to me that certain things just kept recurring over and over again. So I, I looked at the six critical success factors of success. And I just looked at these over the years and years of work that I did. And so there are, in, in my opinion, or in our opinion, in Apex, there are six critical success factors. And so they are you know, athlete development, coach develop, coach and official development, and competition. They're, they're what I call quite often the big three. So good athletes with good coaches, with, you know, with rigorous, strong competition. Then after that, you have things like the daily training environment, the sports science, medicine, technology area. And then the last one, we may always put it last, but in fact, it could be first in a lot of places. And that's the governance and management of how it all comes together. So athletes, coaches, and officials, that one is athletes, two is coaches and officials, three is competition, four is daily training environment, five is sports science, medicine, technology, and six is governance and management. So they were what I call the six critical success factors. 
So when I got together with the, my two partners in Apex, we took a look at it and we said, well, actually, there's a bit more to it than that. So if we go step back a little bit, there are three core functions of any organisation. So anyone listening, think about a club or a national or a provincial or state organisation, professional organisation, international federation, there are typically three core functions, and that's the governance, you know, the governance or management of the organisation, the, the sport development, which is generally grassroots participation development, and then the performance side, the high performance. So those th- they're, they're the three areas that most organisations focus their attention at some level, some a lot more in one than others. And then within that, the things that you do in each of those areas are the six critical success factors. So that's the three, the three core functions, the six critical success factors. And then underneath that, the five pillars that are the way that you do those things. And they're the plans, the, the, um, the people, the plans, the places, the partnerships, and the programs and policies. And so in that three, six, five models, so when we look at a sport to either design a program or, you know, design new programs or to do a review or analysis or to do a strategic plan, we always come back to that framework and say, well, what do we need in the with three core functions? What do we need in the six critical success factors? What do we need in the five pillars, the five Ps, to say, to say what do we need to do and how do they impact each other? And how do we make an effective, long-term, sustainable plan? Or how do we investigate issues or problems in the sport? So, and that's worked out really well for us. You know, most sport organisations, um, they recognise it as a, a great framework um, to do, you know, to explore their organisation and make sure they're covering all the bases. Yeah, for sure. And I love the 365. It's like, and don't do this today and leave exactly. it tomorrow. It's like all year round, isn't it? Day in, day out. That's the other thing. When we do plans, people think, okay, good, I've got the plan, and then they go back to you know doing whatever they did. We say this is something you have to do every day. And, in fact, the U.S. Olympic Committee or U.S. now U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee now, when I was with there working with them, uh, there was a saying that was used as a marketing tool, it's not every four years, it's every day. Uh-huh. And people forget that. People think, oh, they just go to the Olympics every four years and then we don't know what happens in between because it's not on TV. But <laughs> it's every day for four years. And so that's what we say with the 365 model. It's not just today's planning or today's review. It's every day. Yeah, I love that. When you go into an organization or you deal with a sport organization, like uh, you were very involved in, in the Olympic Games, you're involved with Olympic committees. And, you know, do you usually go in when things aren't going well? Or do you have sort of an example of where you've taken something from the beginning and you've been able to have a fresh start and, and off you go? Yeah, there's every level on the spectrum of that. There's some that are really starting from scratch. Just, you know, just we need to build or rebuild our system from scratch, which looks at everything. And there are others that are in a crisis, like something significantly negative or bad has happened and we just want to do a review. And in the four things that I typically do, so review and analysis is one, strategic planning is two, specific program design and development, like let's say design a coach education program or an athlete development pathway, things like that, that's three. And then the fourth one is Olympic Paralympic preparation. So some organizations say, "I, I don't want all that other stuff, I just want to help I want help with designing this program or we, we don't need a strategic plan. We've got it. We just need help with implementation. So, and some say we want everything, do a review, <laughs> help us build a plan, help us build those programs. And then 
if it's relevant, maybe a, a sport, you know, a, a specific competition. It might not be the Olympics. It could be Asian Games or Pacific Games or something like that. So it's sad to say quite a lot it's after some crisis. You know, sure. it's, it's, it's in the negative. I mean, I, I did one with um, British Athletics, you know, that had a great great results in London and they asked me to say, come back in and let's take another look. What, what actually worked? How did we do this? You know? Um, and like what was going well? Um, you, you don't get too many of that because people think, oh, things are going well. Let's not rock the boat. Let's keep going. But it, that's a time when I say, you need to make sure you understand how you did that. You know, what, what actually worked. I mean, the podium in, in Canada is a good example of that. They got great results in Vancouver but there was never a really hard look at how that happened. You know, there was just like, oh, we, you know, let's just move on to the next, the next Olympics and Paralympics and hope it happens again. And it, it has for the most part in Canada. But my answer always is, even though it was successful, don't just think it's going to happen automatically again. You know, that was a managed process. So you need to figure out what parts worked and what parts didn't so you can reproduce it. But, you know, there are some, I'm, I'm working with a country now that really has no sports system per se. I mean, they, you know, people play sport and they, they send athletes to major events. And I've been working with them for a couple of years on little things here and there and here and there. But now they've come to the conclusion, we need a total revamp of the whole system. And so I'm starting to work with them to look at everything from top to bottom. I mean, how they develop coaches, how they fund sports, you know, do they rank sports or athletes? Is there a conscious plan with the overarching body, like the sport national sport council. And is there a conscious plan and management with the sport organizations in the country? And at the moment there's not, you know, there's just, it's just random chaos. Um, and some sports seem to be all organized because of the person involved and others are just terrible because of the person involved. And so, you know, and, and it's really gratifying to be able to do, to build a system from scratch and, and, and look at the outcomes further down the road. It'll take a while for that to, come to fruition i know is communication one of our biggest problems in in sport and in organizations it is in some respect i mean at, at the very simplest level like the example i just gave of starting from scratch it's not so much the communication it's more you just don't have the structures in place and you don't know what you don't know and so let's get them up but yes yeah, certainly communication is critical um and that's one of the things I do with organizations when we're doing strategic planning or program development. It's a, a little further down the road for this the example I just gave, but for others, you know, more sophisticated, more developed, it's developing a communication matrix into understanding who needs to communicate with who, whom, uh, when they need to communicate. Is it every day? Is it every month? Is it every year? What information needs to be communicated? Um, how will that communication happen? Uh, and just sort of mapping it out on a matrix to say, you know, so everyone knows where everyone is on that matrix. And, you know, I know when I need to communicate as a physiologist, for example, if I was in their integrated support team, I need, I know when I need to communicate with the doctors or the, or the psychologist or the nutritionist. And it's not every day, it's every so often, or unless something comes up that I think is critical, then I know, you know, how to do that. Otherwise people, just, they, they stop communicating. They think the other person knows they don't. And, and that's similar with beyond the sports science medicine in the whole organization with the directors, the board members, the parents or the, you know, the stakeholders and going from national to, to provincial. It's just understanding who are the stakeholders and who needs to know what and when, the, when do they need to know it. And it makes sense. And sometimes, again, people think, you know, well, we'll just, it'll just happen. I said, no, it won't happen unless you plan it out. And uh, so we do spend time on that, mapping out that communication matrix. 
Yeah. And, and so what's the most important thing, do you think, for an organization, sport or otherwise, to create those human first spaces? Is it just start at getting good people? What if you have the people in place? How do you create those human first spaces? Are there some things that you go by and that you suggest to people and to organizations that you work with? I mean, again, it's, it's having the right people in place. And so you'll never turn around a person who's a narcissist or who's self-focused only on the results and you know at the expense of everything else so it's doubtful to me whether you can hire a person like that and then say well we we expect you to operate differently i mean you just you don't hire those people (laughs) and you don't hire those people by doing the the work you know before you even get to that point of understanding what sort of person they are And, and that's understanding the right sort of questions to ask you know of references and so forth not to say well did they win medals you know were they good you know, you, you've got to understand how to dig deeper and ask that second and third level questioning. But but apart from that, you know, if you have your values, then I think you need to recognise and reward when people in the organisation are adhering to them. And just so recognise, hey, have you, you know, here's a good story. In a newsletter or a staff meeting or a, a communication with parents or stakeholders or newsletters, things like that, to say, you know, here's a great example of, you know, this coach in this club in in this province who just did a, you know, an amazing job developing a person or amazing job, you know, looking after the well-being or looking after you know, balancing the, the, the life issues with the performance issues. And here's how they did it. And so you need to constantly recognize successes and reward successes you know, and reward them just by recognition is one thing. Um, and, and, and even at the national level, I mean, the issues of, that have come up recently with, let's say, gymnastics in Canada or gymnastics in the US or swimming in Australia, those things have happened because people have swept under the rug or they haven't communicated well. And, and I think those people need to be caught. It needs to be done publicly and, and openly. And I think maybe I'm getting off the track here, but, but, we, need, but we need to recognise when people are doing the right thing, not just wait for them to do the wrong thing. And, and I think if we do more of that, people will start to believe this is the culture of our sport and this is how we operate. You know, we don't do that. We do this. And other coaches will recognize that I'm going I'm to be in trouble here if I continue to do this. So they'll either change their ways or move on, and we hope. Or it won't be things will come. And athletes will be more willing to come forward. Other stakeholders will be more willing, parents or support staff will be more willing to come forward and call things out, you know, before they happen or before they become big issues. Yeah. I don't think you went off the track at all. It's a, you know, that's just so important. Uh, you know, I, I wrote something down as you were talking, and I, I feel, obviously, I think we would all say uh, winning, you cannot win at all costs. That is just what's been damaging so many organizations. But why is winning important still? Is winning still important? I mean, people hire you to ha- help them have success, and part of that success is high performance. You know, is winning important and why? Well, I think it's important. I, mean, I know there's all sorts of arguments to say, well, winning's not the only thing. It's about the journey and the process, which is important. But winning is an example of successfully, you know, perseverance and having a process and, and sticking with it and overcoming obstacles. And, 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 and that's the thing that makes sport great. You know, we've worked together as a team to achieve this or we've overcome this obstacle to achieve this. It is an example of I think winning is a good thing in itself because it demonstrates the successful achievement of that process and of the journey, that doesn't mean that not winning is, is means it hasn't happened successfully. I mean, we can still say, hey, 
you know, team, you know, we did this, we did everything right. Remind me to come back to a point about process indicators versus outcome, you know, performance outcomes. You know, we, we it's not a either or, you know, you can be, I mean, winning is, is good in itself, but also not winning sometimes is, can be good. And let me give the example I just said about the process. So when we set up outcomes, you know, success outcomes for organizations, if the success outcome is a gold medal in the Olympic Games or Paralympic Games or winning the local championship or whatever it is, if that's the only indicator that you have, well, then, yes, I've achieved the success because I did it, or no, I didn't, therefore I've failed. If you also set the progress indicators or milestones along the way that, you know, in order to do to win this, this medal or this qualification or the championship, we need to do certain things as an individual or a team and, we, we, and we're going to measure them along the way as well. So if you, if you don't win the championship, you can always look back and say, hey, but we, we did this and we did this, we did this, we, you know, we trained a certain level, we worked together as a team, we had, we had fun, we had social events, we had all these other, you know, 10 or 15 other things that were successful. We just didn't win the, the final thing. And that's the way it goes sometimes in sport. But if we only have one, one outcome at the end and we don't hit that one, well, then chances are it's like, oh, we failed. You know, because there's no other measures of success. And a lot of times, most, a lot of organizations don't set those other measures of success and they have no other option but to say, well, we failed. Yeah. Is there a process that you went through with an organization or a team or that you're especially proud of? Hmm. I, I did a lot of work with British Athletics with their Paralympic team leading up to the London Games. And in fact, the performance director head coach was a Canadian by the name of Peter Erickson. And I learned a lot from him about how to work with and respect and manage, uh, you know, and, and, and be involved with Paralympic athletes is one thing. Um, so I got a lot, a lot out of that. So I, you know, I, I personally had a big change. But the way that we set up that program in terms of coming up with a plan, involving the athletes, engaging them in the process, having strict, you know, strict performance outcomes, but also being flexible and, and looking at the, the person as a whole and saying, what, you know, what do we need to develop and so forth and the coaches and then get, having great success in the London game. So I, I, I've always thought of that as a, a very positive um, and successful outcome that continued on. And then, and then he actually went on back to Canada and, and managed the program in Canada for quite a few years leading up to the Rio games and had great success. But the organizations that come back and when people say, you know, we, we just didn't know what to do, where to go, how to fix this problem. And, you know, and I helped them figure out them for themselves because they knew the answer. They just couldn't get to it, but help them find the solution to, to, to do things in a better way. And, and, and that's always, it's always gratifying to do that. For sure. What's important to you that you have left with an organization once you've been and gone? I have a good example right now that I'm doing, but that's one of the frustrating, most frustrating things of being a consultant is you can come in, you can do some great work or sometimes not, but, you know, hopefully do some great work, but then you leave and it's up to them to do it. And a lot of times they, they don't. And, and so I quite often say, listen, we need to come back and check on this in six months or 12 months. And that's one of the reasons why the program with British Athletics Paralympic side worked because he kept bringing me back every six months or eight months. And he told the athletes and he told the staff and he told the board, he said, he's coming back in 12 months to hold it, you know, to hold us accountable to see what we've done. So that, that was good. But in the most cases they don't, you know, they go about doing it themselves and then you find out later, well, it just didn't work. But, you know, one of the, the, the funnest example, I'm just starting a project now with an organization in the Middle East, actually, and 
I did work with them eight years or eight to 10 years ago to restructure their sport department, their high performance department, to come up with different structures to work on their participation and their development and high performance side. And then it sort of stopped abruptly, either funding or it was just a, you know, just the politics at the time, which I won't get into, but it just stopped. And then recently they reached out to me again after nearly 10 years and said, you know, we want you to come back and do some work. And I said, well, what happened? You know, like, <laughs> okay, but, you know, to do what? What's the point? And they said, well, actually, all that stuff that you did with us, we're still doing it. You know, we, we just didn't keep you engaged because of a political issue at the time. But they said, you know, and, I, I, and one of the staff who was only a junior staff at the time years ago is now one of their senior staff. And she sat down, she said to me, I was back there last month, she said, we actually kept going with all this stuff. She said, I still kept all the notes and we still did it all. We just, it was just a bit under the radar and it, it, it was still a little bit disconnected, but now, now we want you to come back and connect the dots and add a few more pieces and take it to the next level. So that was frustrating when I never, I never got to go back and to see what happened, but, but having, having found out that they actually continued on with a lot of the recommendations, it was um, really, it made me feel pretty good. Wow. I mean, it was just, it was a shock. I just thought, oh, you know, I'm going to go back. I'm going to have to start again. You know, they haven't done anything. But when I sat down and, and uh, the woman who's the, the director now, um, she explained what they did. And I was just like, oh, my God, I can't believe you're telling me this. But anyway, that was great. Are you ever surprised by the globalness of what you're doing and, and that human first safe spaces, uh, high performance, but being well doing it? Are you sometimes blown away that you're, you know, you're sort of having a, a global reach with this? Yeah, I am actually, you know, because as, as I said in the beginning, I'm an Aussie. We have a great sport program. And then I've worked in the U.S. for years and Canada for quite a few years as a and own the podium then as a consultant but I really do very little in those three developed countries most of the work I do is developing countries or less developed countries um, and small in some cases quite small countries who don't have the resources or the background or experience but I'm just amazed you know like how things transfer from I mean I'm doing right now I'm doing project in India in the Middle East, in Central America, and the Pacific Islands. Um, and it's, I'm amazed how things carry over from one to another. And, and the biggest thing there is the cultural differences. But things carry over in terms of athlete wellness, in terms of focus on sport or participation, or high performance or participation, um, you know, quality coaching, um, all those things. And it's, it's amazing to me that even within the cultural differences, of different countries and different regions, those the, the, the key common elements, the 365, carry over from place to place. Yeah. Amazing, really. Amazing yeah. how relevant it all is to all of us, in no matter yeah. where we're from or, or what walk of life we're in. What they always say when I sit down with what oh, you know, we have all these issues. We have issues that no one else has. And I say, really? Are you done? And then I say, you know what? Because this program in this country over there is sort of having the same issues. In this country over here, they're probably having similar issues. I said, you know, you're all having the similar issues, but the way the capacity and the resources you have to deal with them or the willingness or the motivation, that varies from place to place. But the issues are the same across the world. 
I think that's a big part of, of us being well is to understand we're not alone. Um, well, we've asked all of our guests some rapid fire questions. So you are not alone. <laughs> I'm scared of this. Are, are you scared of this? Well, they don't have to be, you know, they don't have to be super rapid. You don't have to be super rapid on it. You could take some time to think, but uh, you're ready to go. Yeah, sure. All right. Describe a scenario uh, when you had to think on your feet. Oh, man. Pretty much every day. Um, and you don't want me to talk about the, my grandkids, right? Um, <laughs> so when I do a lot of strategic planning workshops, uh, I mean, and I plan it out, I talk to the client and say, what do you want to achieve? What are the issues? Blah, blah, blah. And so I, I map out a process where I've got everything planned. I've got a sequential development. And, and then and invariably I get into it and that doesn't work. You know, or another issue comes up and I've just got to very quickly think, okay, let's take a break right now. And while they're taking a break, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, what, what do we do next? Because that's not working. And so I, I, quite, quite a bit, I have to think quick on my feet for those scenarios. I bet. Where is your happy place if you have one? Well, my happy place would be, uh, well, first of all, I love what I do. I mean, I ha I'm happy doing what I do, working with sport organizations, coming up with new stuff. But outside of that, um, I, I love being in my garden and working and, you know, doing some landscaping and, in, in the garden, it's just quiet, relaxing, and sometimes heavy, hard work. But just I always find that my most relaxing thing, unless I'm out on the bike or out in the long run or walk in the in the forest here. Hmm, awesome. How do you define success? Hmm. Probably, you mean for me personally? Sure. Or for others? Yeah. Well, for others, have to define their own success. I guess my my definition of success is is achieving or, or doing or, or taking the best shot at doing what I plan to do. So if I set targets or set goals or set even task lists, achieving those, and, I mean, that's success. I love that. Tell me about a time where you felt underqualified. You, you're going to probably, you might be surprised at this one, I think. Um, I nearly always feel underqualified. I mean, I, I have the luxury and the pleasure of, of working with different people around the world in different organizations. And I'm always impressed and, and, and uh, not surprised, but impressed about how good some people are, about what they do, you know, and how qualified they are and how, how much experience they have. And I think, oh, man, you know, they, they're a lot better than this that I am. I mean, and I could think of, you know, dozens of people, because people say, oh, you know, you've got all this success and experience in different countries with doing different things. And, and so, that, you know, you're pretty good at it. But then I think, oh, yeah, but I could name 20 people where I think you're so much better than I would. I don't tell them that because I, then that wouldn't be good for my consulting. But I, 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 I think I'm, I'm underqualified a lot of the times. But, you know, I just continue to learn and try and get better that, you know, trying to bring me up to other people. Cool. Tell me about a time where you felt undervalued. I probably won't name the organization or the person, but I did work in an organization that, and it wasn't just me, I think it was all of us, but you now the, the leader or the director was, I think had a narcissistic personality disorder. I mean, it was, it was measurable, it was obvious, it was painful, and I think he just undervalued. He, he didn't value any any of our opinions. I mean, he would sometimes ask for opinions in staff meetings, and it wasn't just me; it was all of us. And and then he'd either cut us off or just would ignore it. And so we got to the point very quickly. And this is the thing with you know the impact of narcissism on leadership is that people just 
didn't feel valued. You didn't feel like putting in any input. You didn't feel like being creative or innovative. And so, you know, that organisation I was seriously felt undervalued. Um, but, but, and I think that's one of the few cases um, that I have felt like that. Yeah. How do you have conversations with people who have more power than you? Hmm. This sort of goes back to being the, the, the Aussie that I talked about earlier that, um, you know, we have a different relationship with power and hierarchy, similar to Canada and similar to the US is that we, we're not afraid to challenge it. We're not afraid to have those conversations. Whereas in some other countries I work in hierarchy and leadership and it's, it's a much different cultural thing. But, you know, typically, you know, I'll, I'll, and it's not to say we don't have hierarchy and power in Australia or, or US here, but, you know, it's, it's being respectful. It's not telling people. And I had this conversation with someone the other day. I said, when you present this information, don't do it in such a way that you know that this is the answer and, and they don't and they're wrong. I said, present it as an option and, and respect their knowledge and because, you know, they're not in the leadership or powerful positions just by, by mistake most of the time. Um, but you have to respect what they know, their experience and their, their point of view and, and respect that, you know, you've got a chance to put your, your position forward. If it works, great. If it doesn't, then that's their right as the leadership. And so rather than, and I learned this fairly early on, that politics plays a big part in everything we do. And I've seen some decisions that we've made and then they got knocked down because of politics or not because they were bad ideas, but politics. And I just, I came to the realisation early on that this is how it works. And so you just either present a good case or wait wait again for the next chance. That's the way organisations work in some cases. Okay, it seems as though mental health is about things you cannot see. When do you see it? Again, not being a mental health expert, um, when I when I go into an organisation and I see the the lack of motivation to do things because people are just torn down, burned down, the um, the lack of energy, the lack of creative ideas, you know, because oh that won't work, you know, we tried that, we did that. Um, so I think you know mental health issues. Not being an expert, I mean that comes out. I think just in their attitude, their the energy people have, the love of what they do, and it's, as an outsider, it's sometimes very easy to see. But um, you know, as an outside consultant, I mean, but it's very hard to change because people are just they're just they're burned out. You know, mm-hmm. by by you know whether it's overtraining by athletes, whether it's being torn down, knocked down by leadership. Uh, and I think I, you know, you see it now with COVID, with nurses and and, and and police and teachers. They're just they're just at their wits' end. They just lost energy and they and they they're burned out. And I think that you know that's clearly a mental health issue. Yeah. Yeah. What, in your opinion, is the biggest change in people post pandemic? You almost led us into this one. Yeah, I did, didn't I? Um, it, it depends. You know, the changes in the US are different because. For the most part, people just didn't accept that it was a real thing for a start. So there's been, there haven't been a lot of changes. But in most other countries, you know, it's the awareness that what can happen in bigger groups, you know, whether or not it's, you know, it's safe to get together and it's not safe for yourself but also safe for other people. I think people are more, more aware and concerned of the impact of my health or my situation on others, others in the group. So mm. that's good. Whereas I think that's less so in the US. It's it's more about the individual 
in the US. And, and again, they didn't do a lot of quarantine or lockdowns or mask wearing stuff here. So the, the difference here is different. But in other countries, I, I, I see more awareness of other pe- people's health around you. So that's probably the, maybe the main thing, I, I think, off the top of my head. Yeah. What do people want from their jobs right now? You know, that's interesting, isn't it? We've seen this around the world now, people you know, changing jobs or leaving jobs that I think they want to feel respected, they want to feel safe, they want to feel like they're making a difference. And, and I think people seem to be leaving their jobs and seeking other career options because all of a sudden they thought, maybe I don't need to do this anymore or the way we've done it. It's, it's, diff- it's different now. Or, you know, this has been a sort of life-changing event for the world. And so people think maybe I should do something different and not just stick in this thing I've, I've been doing and not enjoying. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Uh, who are two or three people who influenced you and how did they impact your life? Well, one of the things that I've always done, I, I can probably think of a couple of people if I'm, I'm stalling here for a second, but one of the things I've always done is I've, whatever job I've been in, even the job where I said about the narcissistic personality disorder boss, I've always looked at any job I've been in and the leadership or the others around me think, what can I learn from these people? You know, what, what are they doing that I don't do that I could do or should do? And so there's been a couple, but there was a, when I first got involved as from, a, so starting out as a physiologist, which is very, you know, regimented and rules-based and equation-based and data-driven and so forth, you know, it, it's very, very objective. And then moving over to the more management side you know doing globe you know overall evaluations big picture stuff i i had to learn very quickly that it's much bigger than physiology much bigger than sports science even much bigger than this it's it's everything together and i i was lucky enough that we did reviews of all the sport sport organizations and this is where i learned i think what i call my craft right now learned how to look at an organization and do an evaluation and think of everything outside the box and, and learned how to ask questions and second level and third level questions. And I learned that from working and watching, watching a woman, working with a woman in Australia, her name was Jennifer Roberts. And I was like, I was a rookie in this area. I mean, I had a PhD, but in physiology, but I was a total rookie in this other management area. And I sat and watched her for like literally years and how she asked questions sometimes challenging, sometimes inquisitive, sometimes knowing the answers, sometimes not. And just watching how she went about her business of evaluating the readiness of a sport to do whatever they were trying to do. And so she was probably one of my first people that I just looked at and thought, you know, how does she do that? You know, and then just constantly watching and watching what she did versus what the answers were from the people we were interviewing or reviewing. So that's one. Um, Jennifer Roberts. So, and the other thing was, uh, when I worked at the US Olympic Committee, my my boss was a man named Jim Page, and he was you know he was 10, 15 years older than me at the time, and he's still around. He's still my mentor. I still go and talk to him when I can, and I learned from him just to listen and watch and hold comments until it was necessary. And I'd often sit in meetings with him, and we'd be evaluating sports, making decisions about the future, deciding whether to give this sport money or that sport, that, that athlete money. And he would often not say anything for quite a while. And then he would quite quietly and calmly say, what about that? You know, has anyone thought of this thing? And I, I just learned to be patient from him. I learned how to 
think about people, not, you know, not, not try and, you know, he'd always ask every time, every time anyone came in the room, how are you doing? You know, how are you feeling today? You know, how's your day going? And he'd always start with that. And I just learned, I just learned how to just be patient and quiet and calm and, and then, and not, not be afraid to ask the question and say, I don't know how that works. Explain it to me. You know, I, I, I'm, even though I've, you know, I've got a PhD and I must be smart because people say so, <laughs> never be afraid to say, explain that because I don't understand it. You know, that's new to me. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so those two people, Jim Page and Jennifer Roberts. And the other thing, you know, I, I said one of the people I learned from is Jim Page. His wife, who was a psychologist, I think, or, you know, she social worker, she worked with people not in sport. And we'd often sit there and complain in the evenings. We'd sit down on his deck and complain about, oh, you know, this sport's doing that and that sport's doing that and this, this coach is doing this. And she'd often come out and she'd say, is this life-threatening? Is someone going to die? You know, is, is this like, you know, she'd look at us and, you know, basically say, get a grip, guys, you know, like put it in perspective of the world. And that's what, you know, that's what I always try and do. It's, at the end of the day, it's still sport, people playing games. that has great outcomes and great um, results. But at the end of the day, let's keep it all in perspective and, you know, so a lot of bad things are happening in the world that keep in perspective. He's the third person that I would say is I've learned from, his, his wife. Fantastic. You keep your ears and your heart and your eyes open. You can learn a whole lot of things from a whole lot of people. Exactly. Well, we've learned great things from you today and uh, amazing. Mental health for performance. Uh, we've become richer from our conversations. So thank you so much for your time and for sharing with us. I'm so glad it worked out. You're welcome. Talk to you again soon, I hope. And that is Peter Davis. And that's this month's Mental Health for Performance podcast, brought to you by Pinnacle, your recruitment firm that has been proudly on the job for the past 20 years. If you'd like to tell others about this podcast, we would love that. You can find us pretty much anywhere you like to listen to podcasts, or you can always check out our website, drtogood.com, where psychologist Dr. Adrienne Leslie Toogood and her team can be found, and even more great stories to listen to and be inspired by. I'm Michelle Sawatsky-Coop. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again soon.